Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL.com. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my two scholars and gentlemen with me this fine Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. And by the way, Mike has a show just before ours on Friday morning at 7 a.m. Mike G. in the uh, Mike G. in the morning, the law matters. I encourage you to check out his fine show each Friday morning at 7 uh, a.m. Well, we're going through a series we've called the Dirty Dozen. That is looking at 12 worst Supreme Court cases, and uh, it's challenging to get it whittled down to just 12 because there's many more than those 12. But anyway, these 12 are ones where some significant change has been made in terms of the interpretation or even the application of the Constitution, a shift in a direction, uh, in most cases, away from the limited form of government designed by our founders. And today is no no exception. What we're going to be looking at today is the case dealing with what some called Obamacare, others called the Affordable Care Act, and so on, as to whether that piece of legislation passed by Congress was actually constitutional. And uh, this is a, a fascinating uh, case, and there's some ins and outs, so uh, stick with us here and, and understand what they were arguing in the Supreme Court and the arguments for saying, yeah, it's constitutional, and then the arguments saying, no, no, there's a problem here. Uh, There's a great deal of unconstitutionality in this particular piece of legislation. Well, Phil, why don't you start us with your thoughts on the Affordable Care Act bill? Well, it's called the National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius case, and the Supreme Court's Justia website describes the ruling in this way. In a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court has upheld the 2010 Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. While only four justices found its requirements that certain individuals pay a financial penalty for not obtaining health insurance constitutional under the Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Roberts found it constitutional by reasonably characterizing it as a tax. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, It is not our role to forbid it or to pass upon its wisdom or fairness. The penalty is to be paid to the IRS along with the individual's income taxes. In a limited ruling, the court held that the act's Medicaid expansion is unconstitutional in threatening states with loss of existing Medicaid funding if they decline to comply, but that the penalty provision is severable which means that failure of that provision does not cause the entire act to fail. Let's assume the Medicare expansion part of the Patient Care Act is indeed severable and that it is legitimate to consider the constitutionality of the remainder of the legislation. Let's first focus on the idea that While only four justices found its requirements that certain individuals pay a financial penalty for not obtaining health insurance constitutional under the Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Roberts found it constitutional by reasonably characterizing it as a tax. The funding for legislation should not be considered severable. The legislation calls for funding through penalties to those who refuse to comply with the legislation not a tax. 
the people who wrote the legislation selected penalties as the funding mechanism for a reason. Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution states, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose to or concur with amendments as on other bills. No doubt they were aware that any new tax required that legislation originate in the House of Representatives. Thus, the emphasis on penalties as opposed to taxes as the funding mechanisms. Funding carefully on the Affordable Care Act's, uh, I'm sorry, focus carefully on the Affordable Care Act's timeline to see the problem with the legislation. July 2009, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and a group of Democrats from the House of Representatives reveal their plan for overhauling the health care system. It's called H.R. 3962, the Affordable Health Care for America Act, August 25th, 2009, Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy, a leading supporter of health care reform, dies and puts the Senate Democrats' 60-seat supermajority required to pass a piece of legislation at risk. September 24th, 2009, <clears throat> Democrat Paul Kirk is appointed interim senator from Massachusetts which temporarily, temporarily restores Democrats' filibuster-proof 60th vote. November 7, 2009. In the House of Representatives, 219 Democrats and one Republican vote for the Affordable Health Care Act for America Act, and 39 Democrats and 176 Republicans vote against it. December 24, 2009. In the Senate, 60 Democrats vote for the Senate's version of the bill called America's Healthy Future Act, whose lead author is Senator Max Baucus of California. 39 Republicans vote against the bill, and one Republican senator, Jim Bunning, does not vote. January 2010. In the Senate, Scott Brown, a Republican, wins the special election in Massachusetts to finish out the remaining term of U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy, a Democrat. Brown campaigned heavily against the health care law and won an upset victory in a state that consistently votes in favor of the Democratic Party. March 11, 2010. Now lacking the 60th vote needed to pass the bill, Senate Democrats decide to use budget reconciliation to get one bill approved by the House and the Senate. The use of budget reconciliation only requires 51 senators to vote in favor of the bill for it to go to the president's desk for signature. March 21st, 2010. The Senate's version of the health care uh, plan is approved by the House in a 219 to 212 vote. All Republicans and 34 Democrats vote against the plan. March 23, 2010, President Obama signs the Affordable Care Act into law. <clears throat> now, notice that H.R. 3962, the original House-passed health care legislation, was dumped in favor of the Senate's version. Also notice the timeline entry that states, 
December 24, 2009, in the Senate, 60 Democrats vote for the Senate's version of the bill called America's Healthy Future Act. That act is constitutional only if funding is based upon penalties. Otherwise, the bill would have to originate in the House and then be approved by the Senate. But Senator Ted Kennedy's replacement had already stated he would vote against the bill, which meant that the Affordable Care Act would not emerge from Congress as legitimate legislation. So now let's take a look at what I call the funding fiction. Neither political party had any illusions about the magnitude of the cost of the Affordable Care Act. Had the funding mechanism not been a fiction, there would have been a specific Affordable Care Act tax to be paid by the electorate, and it would have been relatively reasonable to estimate the revenue to fund the additional cost of the program. There was a danger to that, however, and the taxpayers would have been aroused to pressure members of Congress to oppose the legislation. Better to hide that from the taxpayers and merely talk about advantages of the new program. But funding this significant new federal expenditure with penalties was absurd. Who had any idea how many would refuse to comply and what penalties could be expected over the life of the program? The real funding mechanism behind the Affordable Health Care Act was to roll the substantial underfunding into the general operations of the federal government, that is, to simply accumulate this into other government operations and accept the growing federal debt. And this leads me to the Roberts illogic. Chief Justice Roberts, wishing to recognize the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, created the fiction that the penalties were really a tax. That didn't satisfy Justice Ginsburg, who wrote a concurring opinion for herself and the other three justices, Stephen G. Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, who simply wished to find the Affordable Care Act constitutional as written consistent with their interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, with ostensible funding coming from penalties. Listen to Robert's rationalization for considering the Affordable Care Act constitutional. It is not our role to forbid it or to pass upon its wisdom or fairness. That is a red herring rationalization. According to the Constitution, the role of judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, is to be bound by oath or affirmation to support the Constitution of the United States. Chief Justice Roberts ignored that oath and instead attempted a clever judicial ruse to allow the Affordable Care Act to have the Supreme Court's blessing. To some, it may have seemed clever, but in reality, by insisting that the funding mechanism was not penalties, but a tax, he failed to face the Article 1, Section 7 constraint that any new tax had to originate in the House. He also fell into a trap that sim- uh, into the trap that simply because Congress was granted the power to tax, the purpose of the taxation had to be constitutional. The Affordable Care Act failed that test as uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, ex- uh, 
fail that test as well. From limited enumerated powers to the general welfare rationalization is the next section of my comments. Justia has this to say about the dissent, authored by Justice Kennedy and supported by Justices Thomas, Alito, and uh, Scalia. Collaborating on an unsigned dissent, these justices would have struck down the ACA in its entirety. They criticized Roberts for rewriting the language of the law to find that the individual mandate was a tax when it had been explicitly identified as a penalty. They also found that it could not be sustained under the Commerce Clause power because it would allow the federal government too much authority to intrude not only on private actions, but also private inaction. The partial dissent concurrence opinion authored by Justice Ginsburg with concurrence from Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor is stated at the Cornell Legal Information Institute website. I agree with the Chief Justice that the Anti-Injunction Act does not bar the court's consideration of this case and that the minimum coverage provision is a proper exercise of Congress's taxing power. I therefore join parts one, two, and three C of the Chief Justice's opinion. Unlike the Chief Justice, however, I would hold alternatively that the Commerce Clause authorizes Congress to enact the minimum coverage provision. I would also hold that the Spending Clause permits the Medicaid expansion exactly as Congress enacted it. This is the progressive socialist position and its motivation is obvious. Progressives, socialists, have no respect for the Constitution, and when the progressive socialist agenda instead is their standard. That view is expressed at the Federal uh, Society website in an article about Woodrow Wilson, the second progressive president of the United States. Long before becoming president, as a political science professor and then president of Princeton University, Wilson's aim was nothing less than establishing the theoretical basis for remaking the American system of government in accordance with then emerging progressive era ideals. The opinion of the majority of the court turned on Chief Justice Roberts' interpretation. This is how the Justia, Justia um, summarizes that opinion. Chief Justice Roberts concluded in Part 3b that the individual mandate must be construed as imposing a tax on those who do not have health insurance, if such a construction is reasonable. The most straightforward reading of the individual mandate is that it commands individuals to purchase insurance. But for reasons explained, the Commerce Clause does not give Congress that power. It is therefore necessary to turn to the government's alternative argument that the mandate may be upheld as within Congress's power to lay and collect taxes. In pressing its taxing power argument, the government asked the court to view the mandate as imposing a tax on those who do not buy that product, because every reasonable construction must be resorted to in order to save a statute from unconstitutionality. The question is whether it is fairly possible to interpret the mandate as imposing such a tax. But is it the role of the Supreme Court 
to contradict Congress when it has used specific language in legislation like penalty. This is curious given the Chevron deference established in Chevron USA, in which the Supreme Court signaled its willingness to defer to a mere agency of the executive branch. In this case, Chief Justice Roberts was telling Congress it did not know what it intended when it passed the Affordable Care legislation. There is nothing in Article 3 of the Constitution describing the powers of the judiciary that even suggests this power. There is the general constraint on all branches of government and all public officials in Article 6 that binds judges to support the Constitution of the United States. Chief Justice Roberts failed to honor that pledge. So let us get into the area of health care as a supposed right. Behind the legal language is the assumption that health care ought to be a right enjoyed by every person in the nation. That is a childish notion of rights. First, governments do not grant rights. They recognize natural rights. Second, a natural right cannot exist that allows aggression by anyone against anybody else. We may find somebody else's speech offensive, but that does not represent harm in, a, uh, in our system of justice. If the person is on our property and we may have that person removed. If the person is on public property, we have an option to move elsewhere. That is the essence of free speech. Where there is no harm, there is no foul. That is not the case with health care, according to those who believe it is a basic human right. The amount and type of health care necessary varies from individual to individual. It is true that we are free to take care of ourselves as we see fit, but that is not what is meant by the right to health care by its advocates. Those proposing a health care right either believe that everybody should receive the same level of health care, or alternatively, that a person is entitled to whatever health care the individual believes is necessary. In either case, the promoters of health care as a right believe that health care should be free. But that is a childish worldview. Healthcare is not like the air we breathe, which could truly be considered free. To enjoy healthcare, we must rely upon the efforts of others. And those others ought to be free to, ne uh, to negotiate a price for those efforts or the provision of their services becomes involuntary servitude. Of course, we can delude ourselves that healthcare is a right and that we are entitled to as much of it as we feel we need, and we can have a national government be the sole funding agent for that health care. But there are two problems with that. The first is consumers will be encouraged to overconsume, which is the natural tendency when the price of any product or service is lowered by, uh, below the free market price of the good or service. Because economics is about the allocation of relatively scarce resources, Overconsumption penalizes a society by withdrawing resources from other areas like the consumption of food, shelter, and education that individuals might prefer. By substituting one funding source for the more democratic market funding mechanism, government creates what is called monopsony. Monopoly 
occurs when there is a single supplier of a good or service. Monopsony occurs when there is a single buyer. No government has found itself able to fund all the healthcare services that are demanded when healthcare is perceived as a right. Facing the stark reality of economics, it both rations and sets the price of healthcare services below market through compulsion. Certainly, the minority of the Supreme Court who concurred in the Ginsburg opinion were childish in their understanding of economics, but at least they were forthright in their ignorance. The same cannot be said for Chief Justice Roberts, who sought a compromise with principle through legal cleverness. In National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, Roberts managed to blend economic and constitutional ignorance with fatal conceit. Oh, well, well said, Phil, and I really appreciate you bringing up the idea of do we have a right to health care? Because that, that's a, really an extremely important a basic issue question here, because obviously we all have a God-given right to life and nobody can say, hey, uh, you can only keep your right to life if you pay me. You know, there's no payment involved in keeping the right to life, now, unless somebody's, a, you know, blackmailing you or threatening you or something like that. But that's a crime in and of itself. So the right to health care can't it can't be a right because I'm going to have to force somebody else either to serve me without any pay. You know, the doctor has to do what he does without pay and the nurses and the anesthesiologist and everybody else in the medical profession. They must all serve as slaves to us. And, and by the way, that, that has some history behind it. In the Roman Empire, most of the doctors were actually slaves. They were slaves. Their master, uh, you know, chose somebody with a medical background to be the slave uh, for their family's health. <laughs> Is that our model of, of health care in America now? So uh, we'll, we'll circle back to that question. But that's that's very uh, uh, poignant to ask the question. Is it actually a right? Do you have a right to health care? Now, I want to go back to the funding question because that's a fascinating one that, uh, uh, like you said, they are very starry-eyed about the idea that this extremely expensive, who knows how many billions of dollars that you know annually would be consumed in a, a national health care. How, how in the world were they going to fund that without dipping into the general budget? And they said by, you know, these fines, these fines would be so great that people would be paying billions and billions of dollars. Well, I guess they didn't get very specific how the IRS was supposed to actually charge those fines because I'm one who never got health care insurance. I didn't purchase health care insurance, and therefore I should have been fined under this Affordable Health Care Act, but I never was. And I discovered the reason I was not ever fined is that I never was going to receive a, a sum of money from the IRS. In other words, when I filled out my taxes, I owed them money. They never owed me money. And it turns out the IRS decided the only way they were going to collect this fine is if someone was owed money by the IRS, they would deduct the money from uh, the payment before they sent you the check of, of the money that they owed you after you filled out your taxes and, and all that. So if you didn't owe the I or, or if you did owe the IRS money, they wouldn't fine you. 
but they had never built in a mechanism. They could take it out of the check they were sending it uh, sending to you, but they couldn't force you to pay for it because I think they knew the IRS knew that <laughs> the American people wouldn't stand for that. You know, you get a bill from the IRS that says, hey, you owe this because uh, you didn't purchase any insurance. And by the way, there was a form that if you did purchase insurance, your insurance company sent you an annual form indicating, yes, you complied. And here's the evidence. And you're supposed to file this form with your tax return so that you won't be penalized. But again, you could only be penalized if you were actually owed money by the IRS uh, at, at the end of the year when you filled out your taxes. So, you know, they weren't even very serious about applying how they were going to raise this funds. And, and obviously, uh, there was no way that the amount of money this is going to cost would, would ever be raised uh, by the penalties they were imposing. But I think all of this begs the bigger question. Where in the world does Congress get the idea that it has the authority and the power to do this? Because when you look at the Constitution and you could do a search, you know, a constitutional concordance, every word of the Constitution laid out there before you, never once is health care or medicine or medical, nothing to do with medicine is ever mentioned whatsoever in any line or statement of the entirety of our Constitution and the entirety of the Bill of Rights. So where in the world did they come up with this? And of course, most often they would uh, say, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it falls under the uh, general welfare. And because, you know, the general welfare means the health of the people. Therefore, we have uh, the right to uh, impose on, on this. And so it really comes back to asking, is that what the founders meant when they used the words uh, general welfare? And quite clearly, they did not just check out James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution. Look at uh, James Madison writing Federalist Paper 41 at the very end of that and last paragraph, he's explaining there that obviously we don't mean by general welfare that the federal government can determine in their own minds what they think is good for the people and therefore call that general welfare. In other words, an unlimited uh, power uh, to do whatever and pass whatever legislation they think is good for the people. No, no, no. He said very clearly, this general welfare phrase is restricted to the items that are listed there in Article 1, Section 8. There's about 17, some would argue 18, but at least 17 items there. And those 17 items not one of them has anything to do with the health of the people. And so our founders are very clear. And you'd say, well, well, maybe they didn't have the, the terrible things that we have today, the terrible diseases. No, no, no. Actually, they had worse diseases. Things like smallpox were epidemic and cholera and all. <laughs> they had terrible diseases, but they realized that your medical care is going to be best handled by you individually. And so they determined we need to preserve the liberty of the individual to choose their own health care. And obviously, health care falls into self-government. If you don't take care of your health, if you eat junk food and you, you know, get yourself drunk every night and, uh, you know, you <clears throat> six pack. So you may ruin your health. And then why should somebody else have to pay for your lack of self-control and the ruination of your own health? Uh, so self-government and obviously family government, families craft the next generation and train their children and taking care of their health and all those family government and self-government and children. Church government historically has been most significant in the area of healthcare. In Western civilization, all hospitals were established by the Christian churches. 
all hospitals. In other words, hospitality, which is a command in scripture, was seen if the poor person is unable to care for their health, unable to hire a doctor to come to their home and do a home visit and and nurse them back to health, then we want to provide a ministry and a ministry of the church to the poor and indigent in the community, and that was hospitals. And that was medical care offered as a ministry to care for the needs, which means Christians voluntarily donated money to establish the hospital, uh, to, to fund the doctors and nurses and all of that, which is why when you look at the history of most of our cities, most of the hospitals that have been around for some time are named after some saint, you know, St. Joseph, St. Luke, St. Agnes, and so on and so forth, because they were Christian institutions to minister to the needs of the people. In other words, medicine was a ministry, an outreach of the church government, and it was no business of the civil government to do anything with it. But that changed in the 1960s with the LBJ who brought other uh, terrible disasters and other aspects of socialism into our country and, and advance that progressive agenda you referred to, Phil, in a disastrous sense in our country. Well, what did he do in terms of health care? Well, Medicaid and Medicare. Before Medicaid and Medicare, there was no standardization of the cost of specific procedures or, you know, this often was up to the individual and their doctor. They might uh, barter, so to speak. So if you had a doctor come visit you and, you know, you had the flu in the home and he came to your home and, and you really didn't have any cash to give him. But you had a couple chickens in the yard. You could give him a couple chickens if he agreed chickens for his service. Uh, that was fine. Whatever the agreement was between the care uh, provider and those who received uh, his care, because it was a ministry. It was not seen as a medical industry, which is what it has become. But anyway, Medicaid and Medicare were kind of the nose of the camel under the tent that began the control of the entire medical ministry, turning it into a medical, I guess you might call it a medical industrial complex along the lines of what uh, Eisenhower warned us about as a military industrial complex. But this medical complex became linked to the government establishing payments for certain services that those who had, had Medicare or Medicaid would then have a government payment that was going to pay for the service they received from the doctor rather than they paying the doctor directly. And of course, we know what happens when that takes place. An enormous uh, inflation of every service takes place. All of a sudden, it becomes much more expensive. And all of a sudden, there's all these professionals that have to be involved, uh, professionals who uh, fill out the paperwork and and uh, involved in medical coding. What disease is it? Enormous amount of infrastructure suddenly appeared because the government got involved. And anything the government gets involved with, you can expect that it is going to grow and expand because the government only has one goal, more government, bigger government. We want more employees. We want more bureaucracy. We want more administration. And that's exactly what Medicaid and Medicare resulted in here in America. So then we have the proposal beyond that. Of, of Hillary care. I don't remember that uh, the days when we talked about Hillary care because we saw, wait a minute, you know, if the health care is going to be completely controlled by the government and it started to be controlled with Medicaid and Medicare, if it's completely controlled by the government, isn't the government going to sit there and, and some bean counter is going to decide whether you live or die? You know, some bean counter says, ah, you don't, ah, we don't think your your surgery is essential. You're 65 and, you know, you're one of those worthless eaters. So let's just let you die because we don't want to pay for it. 
And that's what the government does, right? And that's what all the socialized medicine in the world looks like. If you look at Canada, long lines for you know any any specialized surgery, and, and likewise in the European socialized medicine, it delivers a bad product for the people because the government is always going to be looking at how to cut corners. So. When we look at the very basis of this, it is a departure from the constitutional standard that began in the 1960s. And what Obamacare did, or the Affordable Care Act, if you prefer to call it that, what it did was now add completing the government grasp and control of the medical industrial complex. And I think we saw in 2020 with the outbreak of uh, COVID, uh, whether it was from a wet market in China or from the leak at the lab of Wuhan, who knows, but uh, we know that the government basically mandated what every American had to do. You had to put on a face diaper. We command you. You have no liberty to breathe. You're not going to be able to breathe. You're going to wear a face diaper. And you don't have the liberty to continue in employment, not only in government service, not only in the military, but a hundred of or the largest companies in the country were also told you are mandated to take this experimental shot in the arm that nobody knows exactly what happens because no animal trials were done with a shot And uh, the animal trials that were attempted with something similar to this, all the animals died. So rather than have that as our test base, we'll just say, let's make the human beings the experimental subjects. Let's try it out and see what happens. You know, what what could go wrong? Oh, a lot's gone wrong. There's millions of people who have died and many multiple millions of people who have been severely injured, some uh, incapacitated for the rest of their lives with the injuries that they've suffered from this. But what we saw in 2020 is the end result of this Affordable Care Act, government taking absolute dictatorial control of our health, and we have lost our health freedom. Well, I would say we ought to return to freedom, and that means returning to the constitutional standard of what the limits our founders wisely put on the government, the limits on that phrase, general welfare, that means general welfare does not refer to health care because health care is not on the list of the 17 or 18 things in Article 1, Section 8. And therefore, we ought to undo all of it, uh, whether the, the opinion of one Supreme Court justice or the other. No, it doesn't matter. It just should be abolished if we had those who would return to our founder standard. But that's only going to happen if we, the people, know our founder standard and we demand that our elected officials in the Senate and in the House of Representatives abide by the founder's definitions of these words and not what some, you know, some uh, geek 200 years later says those words mean. No, what it is that our founders said, and they said healthcare is uh, the business of self-government and of family government and of church government, but healthcare is never the business of civil government. Well, Mike, uh, what are your thoughts on, on all of this? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, this is something that was discussed uh, quite a bit when it first took place, and I just want to go ahead and read a transcript from a conversation that I saw between two individuals uh, while this was going on. So there's two guys, their, name are, their names are George and Jim, who are having this conversation. And George said, under this mandate, the government is forcing people to spend money, fining you if you don't. How is that not a tax? And Jim says, well, hold on a second. Here's what's happening. 
You and I are both paying $900 on average, our families, and higher premiums because of uncompensated care. Now, what I've said is that if you can't afford health insurance, you certainly shouldn't be punished for that. That's just piling on. If, on the other hand, we're giving tax credits, we've set up an exchange, you are now part of a big pool, we've driven down the costs, we've done everything we can, and you actually can afford health insurance, but you've just decided, you know what, I want to take my chances, and then you get hit by a bus, and you and I have to pay for the emergency room care, and George interrupts, he says, that may be, but that's still a tax increase. And Jim says, no, that's not true, George. For us to say that you've got to take a responsibility to get health insurance is absolutely not a tax increase. What it's saying is, is that we're not going to have other people carrying your burdens for you any more than the fact that right now everybody in America just about has to get auto insurance. Nobody considers that a tax increase. People say to themselves, that is a fair way to make sure that if you hit my car, that I'm not covering all the costs. So George says, but it may be fair, it may be good policy, and Jim interrupts again and says, no, but George, you can't just make up that language and decide that it's called a tax increase. What if I say right now your premiums are going to be up by 5 or 8 or 10% next year, and you say, well, that's not a tax increase. But on the other hand, if I say I don't want to have to pay for you not carrying coverage, even after we give you tax credits that make it affordable, then, and George jumps in, he says, I don't think I'm making it up. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines tax as a charge, usually of money, imposed by authority on persons or, or property for public purposes. And Jim says, George, the fact that you've looked up Merriam's Dictionary, the definition of tax increase, indicates to me that you're stretching a little bit right now. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone to the dictionary to check on the definition. And George says, well, no, but I wanted to check for myself. Critics say that it's a tax increase. And Jim says, critics say everything is a tax increase. Critics say that the government is taking over every sector of the economy. You know what? Look, we can have a legitimate debate about whether or not we're going to have an individual mandate or not. And George says, but you reject that this is a tax increase. And Jim says, I absolutely reject that notion. Now, Pastor Whitney, you're going to have to forgive me. I fibbed a little bit. These two <laughs> gentlemen were <laughs> not George and Jim. George is George Stephanopoulos. And Jim was none other than Barack Obama insisting that this was not a tax in this 2009 interview. Oh. <laughs> I, I may have tweaked a couple of words here and there to conceal his identity for the purposes of this exercise, but 99.9 .9 or his exact words during that interview, and you can look that up. So in a lower court challenge, Judge Henry Hudson of the Federal District Court in Richmond, Virginia, said this on the record. He said, let's characterize it correctly. They denied it was a tax. The president denied it. Was he trying to deceive the people? Now, for the purposes of whether litigation was blocked by the Anti-Injunction Act, the Obama administration lawyers argued that the litigation could proceed because the penalty was not a tax. And Justice Alito called this out, saying, today you're arguing that the penalty is not a tax. Tomorrow, you're going to be back and you'll be arguing that the penalty is a tax. Has the court ever held that something that is a tax for purposes of the taxing power under the Constitution is not a tax under the Anti-Injunction Act. Justice Kavanaugh, who was then Judge Kavanaugh, also recognized this in a lower court opinion and explained why this may be the case. And he wrote, by my count, the executive branch told 10 separate district courts that the Anti-Injunction Act barred these cases. 
but later changed its mind, presumably because of an understandable policy desire to have courts resolve the constitutional question about the individual mandate sooner rather than later. So what Justice uh, Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, was saying that you understand that they're arguing that it is not a tax for those purposes, but their reason for arguing that it was not a tax was just so that the lawsuit could proceed. Mm-hmm. So is it a tax? It seems like they've done some real gymnastics with this one. I'll tell you that much. They can't even figure out whether it's a tax. But if it is a tax, then that subjects you to the origination clause. And just to give a little bit of background on that, it started in the House. And the name of the bill was the Service Members Home Ownership Tax Act of 2009. And though the Senate can amend, the amendment's got to be germane. And I want to take a minute to explain the germaneness principle here. The amendments can't completely change the substance of the bill. And I was involved in litigation that was tangentially related to this principle on the Pennsylvania level. When we sued the city of Harrisburg for their legal gun ordinances, our standing in that lawsuit was founded in Act 192. Now, Act 192 was a law that afforded citizens and membership organizations standing to sue local governments who enacted illegal gun laws. And the way that worked is we've got a preemption law in Pennsylvania and under Section 6120, local governments are not able to regulate the ownership, possession, transportation or transfer of firearms. The problem is that many local governments did that for many, many years, and there was no recourse for private citizens because the courts would kick you out and say, well, you haven't been thrown in jail for violating this law, and therefore you don't belong in the court, you're not allowed to sue. So they've passed this law that says if you, you live in Pennsylvania, or if, you have, uh, if you're an organization that's got Pennsylvania residents that are eligible to own and possess firearms, then you've got statutory standing to sue. Um, But the problem is that this particular law actually started as a bill amending the crimes code regarding the theft of secondary metals. And the court found that the law was unconstitutionally passed because firearms preemption and standing are really not germane to the theft of secondary metals. So you get the same idea over here. Uh, You've got a couple of exemptions. The Senate can create a government program and then institute tax to pay for a specific program, and that's it. But that's not the case here. The Obamacare penalties were not to pay for any specific program at all. You know, you've got other classifications when Congress passes a tax penalty or fee as a means to enforce a statute passed under some other enumerated power. Well, that runs you into a whole other separate problem, which is why they had to turn into a tax in the first place. I think I may have just confused myself talking about this a little bit. But that just shows you the nonsense that they had to make up in order to get to their result. Amen. Well, you know, the other thing we were promised is this is going to be wonderful for Americans. You know, Americans are going to benefit by this because actually you're, you know, if you have insurance already, that price is going to go down and so forth and so on. And if you like your insurance, we were promised by Obama, you could keep it. If you liked your doctor, you could keep it. It wouldn't cost you any more. Well, my family found out that was an absolute lie, although I didn't have insurance. The rest of my family was insured, and the insurance became unaffordable. The Mm. Unaffordable Care Act is what it was. We couldn't afford to maintain insurance. We had to drop insurance for the whole family. So we, a middle-class family, had to drop insurance while poor people who, you know, uh, weren't making hardly anything – they got insurance for a dime, basically. They got very cheap insurance. We couldn't afford it, but they could. It's like, wait a minute. 
this appeared to me like an attack on the middle class more than anything else is, is, is what it was. We're going to soak the middle class and uh, we're going to take money and we're going to help those who are in the lower class. But the middle class, well, who cares about them? <laughs> you know, that's that's the attitude I saw. I remember having friends during that time who were trying to avoid getting a raise because if they got a raise for a few thousand dollars over the course of the year, that would put them outside of the category. And insurance was so expensive that it would end up costing them a ton of money to get the raise. (laughs) (laughs) And the one thing that people made fun of Trump for during the primaries, I don't know if you'll recall, but he talked about increasing the level of competition when it comes to insurance companies. And he described it very simply, something along the lines of, I want to remove the, the lines around the states And Rubio laughed at him saying, what's this guy talking about with these lines? But it's a very simple principle. And Phil can probably explain it much better than I. Uh, But if you you only have one guy in each state who could sell hot dogs and then you say, no, you could buy hot dogs from any state, then people are going to be forced to lower their prices a little bit. Yeah, I'd I'd have to agree with that. That's basic economics. (laughs) (laughs) So the promises that this thing made, I think, are disastrous. But I, I really think the aim, and this is always the aim of the progressives, is a takeover of another area of our life. In this case, a takeover of, of the healthcare area of our life, uh, such that uh, we don't have liberty there anymore. And you know, one of the things that happens is people are are so focused on a, a problem of okay, the folks on the lower end of the economic scale. Uh, are not having their needs met. Well, if we had gone and stuck with the original system before the federal government got involved in healthcare with Medicaid and Medicare, if we'd stuck with the original system that allowed doctors to barter with their patients and and people to, to work out whatever, we would be in a situation where the poor could be taken care of because people charitably would choose to do that. Doctors could say, you know, a certain percentage of the practice are gonna take care of people who are indigent. Uh, and, you know, they, they because they're in it to care, I, I generally think doctors are in it to care for people, not to make a big pile of money. Like Big Pharma just wants to make a big pile of money. They don't care whether it hurts the people who get the shot or not. They just want make billions and they're making billions. So. We see something corrupted that takes place when freedom is lost and a sector of our economy is allowed to be controlled, uh, in this case, by the federal government. Yeah, I don't think I could I could uh, identify a single area where government has taken over uh, a function where they've done it, you know, more economically than uh, the the private sector. I mean, if you ask anybody. uh, uh, would you rather have something done by you know, a private contractor or by, you know, through the bureaucracy? I mean, most people, including progressives, would probably say, uh, get that bureaucracy out of here. We don't want it. Uh, Phil, have you ever been to the Exton post office? Uh, don't believe I have. If you if you got a spare half hour or 40 minutes to wait on a line sometime, <laughs> you can go in there and or you can travel two minutes up the road to the FedEx office and send something that way and be in and out of there. That's yeah. just a little bit of an example there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like anything they, they take their hands touch. 
uh, turns to ashes and, and is not a benefit to we the people, including something that is constitutional, like the post office. Yeah, that's constitutional. But the Affordable Care Act, I believe, is clearly not constitutional. Uh, you have to amend the Constitution to give the federal government any authority in the area of health care. But in the 1960s, rather than amend the Constitution, they just simply did what they wanted and pushed their, their progressive uh, destruction of our liberties. You know, I, I had an experience back in 1979 that, that relates to all of this. Uh, probably at that time, the UK's National Health Service was the so-called premier universal uh, government-funded uh, healthcare system in the world. Uh, however, it was encountering problems. I think it was implemented in 1946. So they, they had a little more than uh, uh, 30 years of experience with it. And uh, what Parliament did was to hire a... Uh, a consultant to go in and find out what was wrong with the, the system. And uh, I had an opportunity along with my superior at the time to uh, meet with this consultant. And of course, uh, uh, once I had met with the uh, consultant, uh, that was a big deal for anybody else that we subsequently uh, interviewed. They really opened up in a hurry because this man was at the top of the political heap. Well, okay. So I got into the, the comparison of uh, various um, medical conditions, and they're, they're all uh, identified, they're codified by the World Health Organization's ICD-9 uh, at that time, uh, International Classification of Diseases Coding System. And so I had experience with that as a part of the work that I was doing in the United States, and I went over and I'm looking at comparable statistics, and I'm saying, geez, for these conditions, these discharge diagnoses, the uh, length of stay is significantly extended in the UK beyond the United States. In other words, people were being uh, discharged quicker, and some people would say, you know, who are defenders of universal health care, and sicker. But no, that really wasn't the case. I mean, the, the lengths of stay were, were uh, longer in the UK. And the uh, uh, the uh, lifetime longevity in the United States was standing up very well by comparison with other nations. So that wasn't the case. So what was happening here? This seemed to be a complete reversal of uh, normal uh, economic behavior. I mean, you had people who were were really being coerced by the government to accept a wage lower. These were healthcare providers. They would accept a wage lower than what the market would would bear, and there was evidence of that because many of the British doctors had left the United uh, Kingdom and had emigrated to the United States and to Canada at that point. I don't think Canada had the universal healthcare system it has now. Uh, these were people who said, "Hey, our services are worth more than the government is willing to pay us, and so we're leaving." So uh, you had this situation, and you know why was it that these stays were so extended? Well, when I talked to some of the, the physicians over there, they confided in me, basic idea, you pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. And here's <laughs> how the, yeah, here's how the deal worked. Yeah, everybody knows who's been in the healthcare uh, system for any time at all that the intensity of care is intense, if you will, on the front end of an admission, and it's 
basically custodial care on the end. In other words, very little effort required. So what the physicians in the hospital had figured out was they were overworked. Everybody was overworked. So what they would do is once they had a patient who had made it through these long queuing lines, um, they would keep them in longer than necessary so they didn't have to, on the average, work as hard. And so the system, you know, the individuals find ways to work around the bureaucracy. That is precisely what was happening. And so the, the queuing lines were actually much longer than they even would have been in a normal universal healthcare system. Hmm. I have an account of a friend of mine that uh, went north of the border to Canada and actually was working at a high level in the Canadian government. And he discovered something about their socialized medicine. It's not equal. He was such at such a high level as the head of the bureaucratic institution that he was leading that he was given a certain set of doctors that only people at the highest levels of government got to go see them. And there wouldn't be a long queue. There wouldn't be a long line. And you got excellent medical care. But the average slob down at the lower level, forget it. You know, you're going to be waiting in line forever. And the medical care you're going to get is maybe below average or what have you. Certainly not what those at the – and he was shocked, you know. At, of course, at that point in time in, in America, we weren't on to full socialized medicine. And, you know, Medicare and Medicaid had come in. But he was absolutely shocked that they had created a two-tiered system, kind of like a – a feudal society, you know, where you've got the barons and the nobles and all these really, you know, powerful people who are wealthy and and they're they have a whole different life than the rest of us. But if you're not in that category, you're not in that class. Well, you just get the dregs, you know, you get the crumbs, whatever's left over at the end of the day. Well, that's the uh, progressive socialist uh, mindset. It is two tier, um, and uh, basically, uh, it's the the elites that uh, matter. Uh, everybody who you know is a serious progressive views themselves as part of the elite. Those who will run things, and uh, you know they may call on the surface for uh, services to the poor and so forth, but that's not really what they're interested in. What they're interested in is power. Ah, yes, and our famous saying from uh, Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see that. And there's an addition to that. And most great men are bad men. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, we well, certainly – go ahead. Go ahead. Any ideas on the way out of this mess? How do we undo it? How do we uh, get back to, uh, I would call it, medical freedom from the kind of medical tyranny that we've seen the result of, uh, you know, uh, this these uh, unconstitutional actions and then the revealing of what that looked like in, in real time in a scandemic is what I call it in 2020 that, uh, yeah, our medical liberty was taken from us. I do want to say this. Could we talk about how the Republicans got caught with their pants down so badly when Trump was elected? regarding all this stuff, because they had this, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and they had been sitting on the sidelines complaining for all those years, talking about how terrible and what a disaster this was and how they could do so much better. And yeah, just wait till we get a hold of this thing. We're going to turn it all around. And then when came time and they actually won power, it seemed like they were surprised. Like the guy who's in the stands watching the fight going on, 
yelling at one of the, the the contenders saying that you're a bum and and you're no good and you can't fight and, and it's like okay well let's see how you fare in here and <laughs> he gets in the ring and he gets knocked out in 15 seconds wasn't that embarrassing <laughs> yeah what what did they do i guess the only thing they accomplished was eliminating the penalty i guess you know right you feel the, <laughs> in the, in the individual mandate that's it uh, you know they, they acted like they were going to fix the entire system and you know things were going to be smooth sailing they had no plan whatsoever it took a whole lot to even get that little bit done well uh guess who really promoted the idea uh behind the affordable care act it wasn't a democrat it was a republican his name was mitt romney and the Republican Party thought so so much of him that they nominated him as uh, uh, the presidential uh, nominee for uh, what was it 2012 I think it was 2012 yeah. presidential uh, race. So yeah, if you dig deeply into these things, it's not a Republican versus Democrat kind of thing uh, in the final analysis. I mean, you have to dig a lot a lot uh, deeper. And that was uh, that campaign you're talking about, the presidential campaign. What were we offered? Socialist A, Romney, or Socialist B, Obama? <laughs> what choice yeah. is that for the American people, right? You know? Yeah. Well, Ob Obamacare or Affordable Care Act, if you wish to, to call it, is really Romney care, which was implemented in Massachusetts first. Ah, interesting point. Legislation has an effect. And I think you're absolutely right, Mike. The, the you know, Republicans had no plan. They, you know, they talked a good talk in order to get reelected. But when it actually came to it, perhaps, you know, maybe I'm a little cynical here, but perhaps they were so deeply in the pockets of big pharma and the medical industrial complex, you know, from the campaign don donations and contributions. So perhaps they were so deeply in the pocket that they couldn't propose anything that would actually bring a change to the system that big pharma and the medical industrial complex loves. It loves that because it puts so much money and so much control in their pockets. Just look at what the response to COVID was in 2020. Who made the most money of all during that disaster when mom and pop businesses were going out of, out of business left and right? Who made the most money? Big pharma made billions upon billions upon billions every single month. They took us to the cleaners. And that's, I think, the real problem here. We got big pharma in far too great a control of those who represent us, supposedly represent us. Turns out it looks like they, they represent big pharma and the medical industrial complex. Uh, Pastor David, you, you raised a question. I'd like to get back to that, which is what can we do to correct the situation? And <clears throat> I think the first thing we, we need to recognize is that uh, you don't take two aspirin uh, if the diagnosis is stage three cancer. And... <clears throat> Basically, if we if we look at proposed legislation that just tweaks uh, the idea of, of health insurance, uh, we're going nowhere. Uh, we'll waste time. My sense for this is that we're going to have to do some really very, very extensive surgery. And the basic idea is that the federal government has currently the right, uh, I shouldn't say right, the power uh, which is it has assumed, by the way, it's not legitimate. It has the power to to tax the individual. That was not the way things were run under the uh, Articles of Confederation. The states paid a single bill um, to the federal government for the services that the federal government provided to the states and the people. 
until we get back to that principle, we're going to have all kinds of corruption uh, that we're going to have to deal with. There'll be rationalizations all over the place. Uh, we'll have opinions like Robert's uh, opinion, which is one of the most screwball opinions that has ever been uh, offered by the Supreme Court of the United States. Amen to that. And you're right. We need to get back to the standard, which means we need to understand the Constitution. Well, this wraps up our series, The Dirty Dozen. Next week, join us again. We're going to talk about the good eggs. That is those constitutional uh, aligned opinions of the Supreme Court that actually maintain the standard. So join us again next week at We the People, The Constitution Matters, 8 a.m. on Fridays.